0: Uh, by a friend on the phone if we were if this church was gonna be doing anything special this morning. And I think you know me well enough to know I couldn't I couldn't let that go. So I said, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do a really special thing where enemies of the king have been brought near and they lift their voices to the one who declares himself holy, 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 yet now it calls them brother. And we'll hear from his word. That's how special it'll be. He said, no, I meant like a solo. And I said, there's, there's 350 solos right here. The story of the resurrection of Jesus is truly the most gripping, striking, overwhelming thing in the Bible. Through this word, through Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, God gives his disciples, amazingly, in, in light of that shock, he actually gives his disciples firm and certain belief in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which is going to be so central to later on their gospel proclamation and even the reception that we have this morning of of a gospel proclamation. I want you to notice how Matthew does it before we get into some of the movements of the text. There's a little bit of an explanation of what Matthew is doing. He draws your attention, my attention, to extraordinary events throughout all of this. This This is not just simply 10 verses. There are so many things happening in this passage. There are events and circumstances surrounding this resurrection, but I want you to notice, maybe you have before, but I want you to notice that he actually doesn't give a detailed account of what happened in the resurrection. There's no words that are given to God's people that said, it looked like this. Something that seems so impossible, this is how the atoms changed. This is how a giant rock was rolled millimeter by millimeter. Notice he doesn't give a detailed account of what happened in the resurrection, but he gives an account of what happens around the resurrection. Just like with the cross before, this writer, Matthew, and other writers like him, they, they showed almost like a turning of the camera to what is happening around him. There wasn't, there wasn't long, detailed discussion of what was actually meant for Jesus to be emulated on the cross. What's amazing, if you Uh, if you study the book of Luke, or if you look at the book of Luke, what what Luke does time after time is he zooms in on who Jesus is as a person, and then once Jesus is on the cross, he actually zooms around, showing this person. Not, Not Jesus, this person. Not Jesus, that person, that person. Some of these people in Luke's account actually show up for the very first time. The sign there is, what is the point of Jesus's cross? That he would die for his people. And here, where's the perspective going with the author of Matthew, showing around, I, I think that what Matthew was trying to demonstrate and show to us of, of those who were weary, those who were in anguish, those who were now fearful of the one who they had followed, Oh, he'll show up and he'll give them courage. Notice that by the time we get to the resurrection, it's actually already occurred. It's an after the fact of count. He, he gives the setting, he gives the characters, he gives the geography, which drive us all to the point that the resurrection wasn't just something that happened, but something that still speaks, guides, illuminates, and drives us to the one of whom accomplished it all. This resurrection is the very center of the Christian proclamation of the gospel. One of the things that we do, so if you're here as a guest, or some of you know, if you've joined in recent years, when we when we bring people into membership, we, we take them through a membership class, and then we have an interview with them where we ask them not only stuff about themselves and information about themselves when they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but then we also ask them, can they, can they express the gospel? Can they say the gospel in, you know, 30 seconds or a minute or less? Can they just say the particulars of the gospel? Part of that is so that we, or that they can feel emboldened that, hey, once I did that and the fear and trembling of an elder asking this, pointing at me, but also they'll be emboldened to go share the gospel after that. But also we can, we can kind of help them say, oh, you missed a very important part. And I'm willing to bet that 95% of people who I say, hey, can you explain the gospel in a minute or less to me? All of them, 95% of those always forget the resurrection. And so they say, you know, Jesus has died. He was buried for the forgiveness of my sins. And you go, then what? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, is he still dead? And they're like, oh no, on the third day he rose again. I'm like, okay, because if you miss out on that, you miss out on everything. The resurrection is the very center of the Christian proclamation of the gospel. And so it's no surprise that the Spirit of God would inspire the Word of God to testify about the glory of God in the very resurrection of the Son of God. So if you struggle here today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you've been stumbling through faith and you struggle with the very reality of the resurrection itself, I want you to know that, that what you're going through, the, the things that you're a part of in your mind, that, that's not an intellectual struggle. That's not what you're going through. The, the Bible would actually say that's not a mental exercise, that if you can just understand a couple of facts, then you're good to go. The facts of the resurrection are, are actually just laid out before the eyes. Everyone's eyes including Jesus' own enemies and disciples. But Jesus' enemies work very hard intellectually denying it or seeking to understand it, whereas intellectually speaking, it's actually the easiest thing in the world to be embraced. I'm going to walk through this passage uh, for you in three parts, or I'm going to call them three brushstrokes today. If you look at verses 1 through 4, that's the first brushstroke. Verses 5 through 7, that's the second brushstroke. Finally, in verses 8 through 10, that forms the third brushstroke, three parts of this passage. And the reason why I'm using brushstroke instead of parts or things to see or points, because I think when you just take a step back and look at the, the account of the aftermath of the resurrection, it is a masterpiece. It is something that has shocked the world for 2,000 years, and it'll, it'll shock even the angels for an eternity because it, it truly happened. I want you to see first uh, this first brushstroke, the glory and the majesty of the resurrection that's just simply and politely placed before us. In verses 1 through 4, we see women encountering the scene where these two faithful disciples witness five signs that God has done something extraordinary at the tomb. And I think this is important. The big kind of scope of this and context of where this passage is in the scripture, God is actually vindicating his son through the author of Matthew later to the world. If you're just reading this part all the way through and you're getting up to 26, 27, chapter 28, you're actually seeing God himself, the Father, vindicating his son. But also, he's building an unquestionable foundation for the faith of believers. You might might imagine reading through the book of Matthew, and if you're following along as God has intended, your faith, bit by bit, chapter by chapter, page by page, ought to be strengthened, like going to the weight room day after day. By the end of the summer, man, you are really strong at that endeavor. Chapter by chapter, you are really understanding, man, God is glorifying himself through his son. The very fact that these women are on their way to the tomb to anoint a body indicates that they're still in question, though, of what's happened. They're going there because they think that he is still buried. So in part, they're not all in, though they're all in emotionally in following him, and even practically in following him, but they still don't get it. And what they would see as they would get there, people were, well, forever changed. And the very fact that they were doing this shows part of their faith that had gone through a crisis, but not a completed faith, because they couldn't see what was about to show up to them. So I want, you to, I want you to see systematically through this passage of how God the Father strengthens their faith. And friend, I just pray, whether you're here as a Christian, I hope that it strengthens yours. Or if you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope at least places things on the table for you to consider of what it means to behold God in his majesty. Just to see how God vindicates his son, exalts his son by his power. Early Sunday morning is when this account would have taken place. The women make their way to the tomb and Another gospel writer, Mark, tells us that they were coming for the purpose of anointing this body, and Matthew just tells us that they are showing up. Matthew writes that there were guards stationed at the tomb, and the tomb was sealed. Now, something to know, uh, although the women were devoted, they were loving and loyal, they were the last at the cross, and they were the first at the tomb. So even that is a sense of encouragement. They would have been the last ones to see him die, but now here they show up in the early morning, possibly in the darkness. Even though they showed far more courage and commitment than others, they still hadn't seen him, meaning they still hadn't truly believed. They heard from Jesus' lips that he was going to be raised again from the dead on the third day, but they didn't expect that to happen because they were there that morning. Yet these faithful women make their way to the tomb. And as they do, they are greeted by five unexpected events in order that God may grip their attention and strengthen their faith. Look at at verses 2 through 4. First of all, you see that that there's an earthquake. Now, maybe you know that the Old Testament, whenever there's an earthquake, that leads to a magnificent manifestation of the presence of God. Like at Sinai, when, when Moses was there and the earth shook, it was often a sign of the presence of God, amazingly, in order to comfort God's people. I've been through an earthquake. We've all been through an earthquake. There is nothing comforting about an earthquake. Yet God repeatedly in his word, when the earth would be shaking, that ought to be a sign that something comforting, peaceful, was about to be bestowed on them. But it was also a sign of God's judgment against his enemies. I think there's a little bit of both here in this tomb. God's judgment against his enemies and God's comfort to his own people. And so they approach and this earthquake occurs. The second thing is, there is amazingly an angel that appears. This angel is God's special messenger, where His presence would be on display, and it absolutely terrifies the guards. You might draw angels at home, maybe with arts and crafts with kids, or maybe you might even have angels. You know, I have a, I have a like, some kind of angel-looking thing on my bedside table as a reminder of some of the things that Brooke and I have gone. It was a gift from someone else, but angels in the Bible, are, are never like the sweet little resurrected lambs that we make them out to be. Angels in the scriptures brought absolute terror in people's faces. The most gargantuous, mesmerizing, illuminating, apocalyptic thing in the world just appears out of nowhere, and it freaks out those who are guarding the tomb, the presence of the angel, and especially the presence of that angel sitting on the stone which had previously sealed the tomb, is a visible symbol of Christ's victory over that death. The victory that should have not been allowed because of the guards of the tomb, and it's a manifestation that God has conquered death. He's conquered Jesus' own enemies. But there's a third thing that they see. There's the stone itself in verse 2. The stone was completely removed from its position. And it was laid over on its side. <laughs> the angel was sitting on it. Just a two-stage mockery there. Not only was it moved, but then flattened. Not only was it flattened, but an angel from heaven was sitting on it, just gazing at God's enemies, saying, Look at you. You're worthless. But Matthew makes it clear, that all the other, as all the other gospel writers do, that the reason the stone was removed was so that the disciples could actually look in and see that Jesus was not there. We have this image that the stone was rolled away and Jesus just emerged out like a, like a football player coming out, of the field, coming out on the field right before a game. And that the whole point was, was his arrival, that first footstep maybe on the grass or the dirt before him. But that wasn't why the stone was rolled away. Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away. They had the power to overcome anything or go through anything, but the reason why the stone was rolled away is so that you and I could look in and, and see that no one's there, no one's hiding. We could look up, we could look around, we could wipe off the dust of this and be like, man, it's been a while since someone has been here. And so you see what God is doing here. He's laying a groundwork for sure confidence in the resurrection of the Son, and his concern is not to let his Son free, which cannot be held by the power of the grave, but instead to allow disciples to look in and have their faith strengthened. Friends, I wonder, even in this now three-part point of what they would encounter, would the open tomb encourage you? Would the angel on the tombstone encourage you? Would the earthquake encourage you? A fourth thing that happens is it's astounding that the appearance of this angel, it's actually a description that is striking. His appearance was like a lightning bolt. And his clothes were white as snow. Now for us, if you've read the Bible at all, you should be reminded of the description of this angel. It looks like the one that was in the book of Revelation. Chapter 10, where John says, I saw a strong angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud and with a rainbow upon his head. And his face was like that of the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. The description of this angel is not unlike some of the descriptions of the Lord Jesus elsewhere in the Old Testament where in Daniel chapter 7 talks about the sun approaching the Ancient of Days, or Matthew chapter 17 at the Transfiguration, where they were dazzled at the pure sight of what was going on, this tremendous picture, or finally in Revelation chapter 1, where an angel is a visible picture of the glory and the magnificent, overwhelming holiness of God. What would that look like? And friend, would that encourage you? Fifth, you see that the guards were terrified. The stunned guards were lying around. It says they were dead, meaning they were powerless. They were petrified, terrified, stunned. The seal, the stone, now the guards, all devices of humans used to secure the end of Jesus' people, the end of Jesus' claim, the end of Jesus' message, all those attempts by man to secure their victory are now left oh, like someone came in and just got rid of everything on the field which is a fulfillment of Psalm 2, where he who sits in the heavens laughs at his enemies. And in all these events, God is laying a groundwork to strengthen the faith of his son's disciples. Now, you know that if you read the end of the section that women are going to go tell Jesus' disciples, and they're going to tell him a certain message, but don't you know that they're going to tell him what they saw? And would that encourage you, friend? But notice in this passage that the first people to behold these evidences are, in fact, Jesus' own enemies the guards who have been placed there. Then the women disciples see it. And you see the soldiers and the women are witnesses to the same reality. But the problem of believing and beholding Jesus' resurrection is not by any lack of testimony or lack of intellectual reliability. The problem in believing in the resurrection comes from another area that we'll get into in a little bit, but, but you can imagine, okay, they've just been giving five things, and you might go, man, all I need is four. Or you might go, I need six or seven. Seven's like the perfect number, right? I need seven things. It was on the seventh day. This could really make, this could really make for a good Christian message. They were brought these five things. Could have been four, could have been six. Who, who cares at that point? But they were brought these overwhelming evidences of a king who was no longer to be bound. And yet they still were wondering. Second thing I want you to see in this passage is the brushstroke of the terror that this resurrection causes. Look at verses 5 through 7. An angel speaks. And the angel gives a word of comfort by an announcement. Remember the context. Matthew had just told us the guards were stunned with fear. And so the angel speaks deliberately now to, you can imagine the camera zooming on the women, now to comfort the women. And the first words out of his mouth were, do not be afraid. The most regularly repeated phrase in the scriptures, don't be afraid. Think of it. The guards have, have good reason to be afraid. But these women, they don't have any good reason to be afraid. This should be the most incredibly comforting thing in the world to them. These women had not sufficiently trusted in Jesus' promise that he'd be raised from the dead, yet they stuck close to him. And they were showing their commitment to him. And it became a beautiful thing where there is not a shadow of harsh rebuke on these women. The angel never gets close to this harsh rebuke on them. The closest thing that we have is the gentle rebuff that we see in his words. I I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. I know you're here doing what you think is the right thing to do. But I need to tell you that he is risen just as he told you he would. There's a subtle reproof in that. You should have listened to his words, but sister, hey, come close. Be of comfort. He is risen. He's not here. He comes and tells them ten things in this short passage. Look at these verses. Uh, Ten things that he tells them. Now, if you're keeping track on your outline, I've got five points in the first point. I've got ten points in the second. No, I don't have 15 points in the third. But the first thing he says is don't be afraid. These women are in the presence of of a great act and manifestation of God, and they're in the presence of an angelic being and the tendency of every saint in Scripture, the Old Testament and the New, when you were in the presence of God, it was natural for you to tremble just at the awesomeness that's in front of you. And so these women need to be assured, don't be afraid, but they also had a very difficult task ahead. They were going to have to go and convince people who really didn't want to be convinced about the very resurrection itself. He gave them a twofold message Be comforted and go to this particular place. It would have been very discouraging to hear this. I just want to be comforted so I can rest and hang out. But he's telling them, Be comforted. Don't fear. Now go to work. A second thing that he says, in a way, he says, I know precisely why you are here, and I am here precisely because. I know you are here. I know what you're looking for, and the reason that I'm here is because I have a message about him that you are to take everywhere else. And then he begins to explain to them, and that's the third thing. He is not here. That's the third thing that these women are told where Jesus is. He's not here. And that's implied by the angel is saying that he's not here. Now, fourthly, he's not only not there, but he tells them that he's been raised or resurrected. It's not merely that he's not in the tomb, but he hadn't been taken off somewhere else, as some people thought that had happened. No one came in and stole them. No one paid off the guards and gave them enough money so that they could you know, pretend to be asleep or something. But he is not only placed somewhere else, but he is he's operating on his own. He's alive. So it's not just that he's not here, but he, the one who thought was dead, is now alive. And fifthly, just like he said, he takes us right back to the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, look, he told you so. He told you this would happen. This is not something that should surprise you. This in no way surprised God. This in no way surprised the Christ. This should in no way surprise His enemies. This is something that shouldn't surprise you. Certainly didn't surprise Him. This is exactly what He told you. Now before I go to the sixth part, I think there's just a little bit of application there, friend, Christian. As you go through the Word and you wonder what it says, I wonder if you continually remind yourself and think about that all that God plans to do, says that he will do, acts to do, is in accordance with what he said he would do all along. In many ways, that should be a great comfort to you in the midst of sorrow and in the midst of joy, that the one who's carrying out all of this is the one who knows exactly what he is doing. He saw his own son, his beloved son, the only begotten son. He saw him crucified. Yet as we saw at the beginning of Genesis, maybe a year ago at this point, our God is never confused. He's never feeling like the game plan is going awry. He's, he's the one who says, or it says, that he is always at rest. He's causing his will to carry out. Jesus is not there. He is alive. Just like he told you he would be. Friends, I wonder if there are things that you question about what God says for you, about you. And allow this just to be more evidence that what he says he loves, he loves. What he says he will do, he will surely do. Now, sixthly, uh, look at this. Look inside and see why the stone is rolled away. It's rolled away for the faith, like I said before, for the faith of the disciples that they might see the truth of the resurrection. And then seventh, he says, go quickly and tell his disciples. The angel commissions these women to spread the word to the disciples. They'll become bearers of this amazing resurrection to the disciples and to themselves. And then 8, he says to go ahead, uh, that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. So go to them in Galilee. Tell the disciples to go to Galilee, just as he had instructed them. Now, you might see this as random, but guys, remember that as Jesus was leaving the upper room on the night of which he was betrayed and making his way to the garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew chapter 26, he explicitly says to his disciples, When I'm raised again, I will meet you at a designated place, and that place is Galilee. And so the angel is saying to go to that place, just like Jesus told you where he was going after he would be raised, and he'll meet you there. And let's just have this emphasize something that is so clearly given to us as encouragement this morning of why he went to Galilee. Matthew makes a great deal amount of the fact that Jesus' ministry began in Galilee, And now after what seemingly all defeat has played itself out, he then goes again to Galilee. Matthew calls Jesus, according to the words of the prophet, a Nazarene, a Galilean. That is, people called him a Nazarene, someone from Galilee, someone who'd be looked down on. And Matthew makes a great point about the fact that the Messiah's ministry began in Galilee, and then he goes right back. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 to say that Jesus' ministry in Galilee is actually the fulfillment that was given to the prophet of Isaiah. And Galilee is so important to Matthew because it symbolizes symbolizes the Galileans, or you could say, slash the Gentiles. The fact that Jesus is going to be a savior, you could think of it this way, of not only those people, but he'll be a savior of the world. Or maybe to put it more precisely for us this morning, even you, friend. Who feels so far away even you is where he set up shop to do his work where he went to complete his work even you here today where he's drawing you because of his finished work on that cross from that grave i mean amazingly isn't that really awesome like this is not just stuff and words on a page and oh what a nice little lullaby lullaby we all sing on the morning no this is this is this is a masterpiece this is overwhelming it's like it was done on purpose And then ninth, he says, the angel, you will see him there. And the disciples, he says, will be a witness to the resurrection there. And then finally, tenth, he concludes with these words, I've told you so. That is I, the glorious messenger of God Almighty, I've told you this. Like a a seal or a stamp on a holy letter. This is true. It's coming from me, which means it comes from God. God cannot lie. I, as a messenger of the Lord, cannot lie. This is true. I've told you this, now it's your time to do the telling. What God is doing throughout the message of this angel, what's the point of all these, these ten things adding up to what? Well, I think all this work is to strengthen the faith of his people by his own very word. The word of the Lord goes out to you and I today. The holy book that you are grabbing onto right now is for your strength and nourishment and courage As you go out to wherever God sends you. He is strengthening the faith of his people by his word. And I want you to notice something here. God just doesn't do miraculous signs at the resurrection. He doesn't just do that. He explains what's happening. And the word of revelation comes from this angel. You see this through the scriptures. He doesn't just do stuff. But then he gives you his holy word. His holy writ. If you want to sound really professional to give you great courage that what you have seen is true. Now go and tell everyone else. It's amazing that whenever God does something in the Scriptures, and God does a lot, friend, if you're unfamiliar with the Scriptures, it's not just a simple story. He does so many amazing things right after He explains what He is going to do. And then right before He re-explains what He just did. There is no confusion in God's glory. He says, watch how glorious I will be. And then he is glorious. And then he says, Look at how glorious I was. You think of this in the great act of the Exodus. What did he tell Pharaoh that would happen? What did he tell his people that would happen? Then what did he do in that great midst? And then what did Moses write so that you and I would never forget all that God has done? And he's done the same with the resurrection. Jesus pre-explains and predicted the resurrection. The prophets did the same thing. And then the event occurs with a great display of God's power. And then an angel shows up and says, it happened. Go tell everyone. So that they'll know all that God planned to do, did do, and did. He sends another revelatory word to explain what it means. And so what is he doing here? God is not only confirming and vindicating his son and the gospel through these events of the resurrection, but through the very word of explanation, through the very angel of the Lord, he is strengthening the faith of his people in deed and in word. This is how I think this shows itself to be so important for us. And friends, we we have to believe the same way. God expects us to trust him in his providence by believing what he has said about his providence and in his word. And that's exactly what he's doing here for his people right here. He is leaving them to trust in his providence and to regularly regularly believe in your word. You may come here this morning from another tradition of the Christian faith where a pulpit might be off to the side. And then there's like a smaller pulpit off to that side. And in the middle is the Eucharist where that's actually the focus of it. I think one of the things that's so important that when Christians gather, we don't gather around that kind of sign, but we gather around the word going out that has changed us. People are saved by the proclamation of the word. People are built up by the proclamation of the word. You in your soul needing nourishment at 5 a.m. in the morning after a day of misery the day before are brought fresh life by the very word of God. We sing words that are true from scriptures. We pray from the teaching of the word because it's the very word that testifies like a holy angel in front of us that he is risen indeed. Friends, see the third thing in this. See the third brushstroke where the comfort that is given from his resurrection. Finally, you look at verses 8 through 10. You'll see the response of the women. And in this wonderfully, you see the grace of God, even in the way that Jesus encounters these women and in the word that he gives to them. The, 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 the women, are you are told, didn't walk. <laughs> they ran to tell the disciples this good news. Look at verse 8. Their emotions were filled Filled with fear and joy, it says. Fear and joy. I wonder if you've noticed how often in Scripture these two emotions are present when the people of God are in the presence of God. Fear. Man, can you imagine? And joy. Man, can you imagine being anywhere else? There is no casualness when you are in the presence of God. He's the awesome God of heaven and earth, and so the heart, trembles with awe, and at the same time, there is no place in the world that God's fear would rather be than in the presence of him. So there's fear and joy mingled in the hearts of these women, and suddenly, unexpectedly, look at the drama of the text. There are so many things that have happened before this, but then dramatically, suddenly, unexpectedly, they're running, and Jesus himself comes to them. Catch this beautiful moment. Matthew doesn't even say that the women ran into Jesus. He didn't bump into them like you might bump into someone at a grocery store. He says, look at the noun, Jesus met them. Jesus comes to these women, and immediately and instinctively, they fall at his feet, and they worship him. Here's a song that came out maybe four or five years ago, done in the way of an old ancient hymn that talks about what you and I are to do when we go through the hard things in life. But there's a twist in that song. It starts out with when Jesus said that if I thirst, what do you do when you thirst? I should come to him. No one else can satisfy, so I should go to him. Jesus said that if I'm weak, friend, what do you do when you feel weak? Jesus said that if I'm weak, I should go to him. No one else can be my strength. I should go to him. And Jesus said that if I fear, I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. And the hook of the song says, fourth, Jesus says that if I'm lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross that he will come to me. And then it goes on for the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind because of that fourth phrase, because it's him who met them. Jesus comes to these women where sight of him gives them faith, the privilege and the responsibility of carrying an important message to Jesus' faltering and fearful disciples. And note specifically how Jesus tells these women to address his disciples. The first words from Jesus to his disciples through the lips of these women are called, My brothers. A shocking thing for the Lord, the Son of God, to title them. He's been telling them now for years. Who he is. They are in a state of despair and fear and running away. And I'm the kind of guy that would want to either go nanny, nanny, boo-boo, or say, you don't belong to me if you don't want to be a part of me. But what what does he do? He says, my brothers. A shocking thing for the Lord, the Son of God, to title them. You You see the tenderness here of the Lord Jesus in this, my brothers. The sovereign Lord relates to them here as his own brothers. My brothers. You can imagine him focusing his heart on the Father, saying, I'm doing all this in accordance with your will. And here now are my brothers. Because of what I have gone through, because of what you brought me out of, Father, these are my brothers. A shocking thing. And it's so clear that Jesus wants us to be convinced of his resurrection for all hope and salvation and all of our righteousness that are, that are in fact laid at the feet of the one who rose from the dead. But, but remember what it would have looked like for those hands who would have seen those faces fall down as they should, casting all of their crowns down to him. It would have been those, those same hands that would have lifted those faces up and said, Brother, I'm here. I did this for you. Friend, be assured that Jesus was raised from the grave. That's the point of this passage. He was, where he then desired the way to be open for us to be reconciled to him. He does not wait for us to seek him out, but at his timing, it was him who purposefully rose. It was him who commanded these women to speak. It was him who brought news to these disciples. It was him who made the provision for all of us to be called by this preaching of the gospel for this message to sound aloud from the lips of the preachers for all the people to hear the message of you sinner who are far away come to me and thirst no more today christian this is a day of joy and festivity we are all wearing ridiculous colors and happy taking pictures kids let your parents take your pictures husbands Offer to take the picture for your family? Why? Why is today a day day of joy and festivity? Why is a day like today unlike any other holiday around us? Because it's because of this day that you can enjoy the righteousness given to you by faith. In the presence of the risen Lord Jesus who calls you brother. And so you see the love and the grace of the resurrected Lord as he nurtures faith amongst these Struggling disciples. So I want you to see, finally, is how God is drawing the faith of these disciples to trust in his word and in his providence, to believe in the resurrection. It's by his appearance. It's by him showing up. And him, and he will continually say to you, even to us today, what you need is not evidence that you can find on the ground. What you need is me, that you can have by my spirit. So since the Lord condescended to count us as brethren, so that we would joyfully have access to God, let us seek him and freely come to him, the Lord who is ruling and reigning and graciously invites us in. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that this day your word testifies about what you have done for your people, and we pray that you would cause us to respond towards you in joy and in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friend, here for all of us, I want you to consider the reality that God in Christ not only calls you to himself by his very word, but also as a blessing to you, as a strengthening blessing to you, actually shows you his love visibly through what's called an ordinance that we call the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was crucified, he did something unique. He ate dinner with his friends, and as they were eating, he, he stopped them and he gave them a picture or a sign through, through different elements of, of all that his gospel would mean to them. What Jesus did on the last supper was he took bread and he took wine and he divided the bread and he passed around the wine. And he said, this is to be seen like a meal. And he said that they should have it that moment and that they should see it as a sign of a body that was going to be given over for them. And drink this drink as if it was blood that was to be given over for them a sacrifice on their behalf that they take all in. Now, Christians, we see, are called to observe what's called the Lord's Supper because it points, amazingly, to Christ's death, where at his death he was killed for his people. His blood was shed for his own, assuring salvation on their behalf. And so it's important for those of us who are Christians today to know who this table is for. Who is this table for? I'm going to give you directions in a second, but... Who should go up to that? Well, Christian, in your sin, you were met by God. In your repentance, you were forgiven by God. In your walk, you are being sustained by God. And if you're in Christ, the risen Redeemer says that this meal is for you to take as a sign and as a reminder of what he did and as a promise of what he will one day do. Take it to reorient your heart toward the finished work of Christ. Now, Paul, an apostle in the scriptures, says that we should examine ourselves before we go to one of the tables around us. We should confess our sins toward God, asking for the forgiveness of our sins, and then we should take the elements, though, with confidence. I'm regularly reminded that you need to be told this is not a funeral procession here. This is something that is somber and serious, but this is something that should be approached with great joy. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ Jesus, I want to humbly ask you to not partake of this meal because of the significance it is for us, his own. Instead, I hope that you'll use this time to consider the gospel that you've heard from the scriptures and the claims of Christ himself, where we'd love to talk to you more about it. But in this moment, I just ask that you would allow this time to pass over you and allow that time of contemplation, of answering the question for yourself, has he risen? And what did that mean? For those of you who profess in believers, or profess to be believers, but your life is marked today by unrepentant sin, you're under warning from 1 Corinthians, where it not only instructs us how we are to receive the supper, but also why we receive it and the posturing in receiving it. So I want to encourage you, if you're in unrepentant sin, to, to hear this warning and not participate today. Humble yourself before the Lord and repent of your sins, even using the process of not partaking today to spur you on toward Repentance. Now, in a moment, I'll, I'll pray, and then when I'm done praying, you can get up and go to the tables. There are two up front, two on the sides, both sides, of so the four all together, and then there's two in the back. There's some in the balcony, and if for whatever reason you don't want to get up and go, you don't want to be around other people, or you just can't imagine meandering yourself back there, there are going to be a couple of deacons who are going to walk down the center aisle, and if you just motion at them in some way, they'll bring the cup to you. Now, there are two cups. Take both. There's bread under one and then stacked with juice and take that back to your seat. Maybe use the moment of reflection to pray in thanks of all that God has given us, but we'll be taking of this together. So before we go to the table, let me pray for us and thank God for what he has done. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that it is you who we can look to as the object of our hope and our faith. We thank you that it is you who sent your son to give us all that we need, for an everlasting life of joy and peace. We pray as we approach this table that you would remind us of our position, but you would also remind us of the joy of the brotherhood that we are in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.